Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome again, and welcome everybody watch online and our Montrose building, our live sites. Thanks for joining us as well, and uh, always uh, excited to see you guys. When um, when I think about what God's doing in thirty and thirty, it it blows my mind. I was out of town this week, in between the weekends, actually working on some opportunities from uh, from thirty and thirty, and I see God opening some incredible doors that uh, if he continues to lead us down, it's going to fuel 30 and 30 in some incredible ways. It's very, very exciting stuff. And then to be able to commission Ryan and Lori, I'm just grateful for all of that. I really am. I'm grateful for all of you and uh, your support, uh, people who sign up to go and the the millions of dollars that we, over the years, we wind up spending on all this stuff that you give and God just uses it. He uses it in incredible ways. Thousands of people have come to know Christ, and uh, churches are being established, and, and they're independent. You know, they, they get on their feet, and it's just exciting to, to be a part of it. So thank you for your willingness to be a part of it, and uh, there's more coming. That's the fun thing, and it's going to be exciting to see what God does here in the years to come. We're in a series here uh, called The Beginner's Guide to Hating Your Life. And what we're doing is we're talking about how Jesus defines what it means to follow him, right? And so we've said that we have lots of definitions. We kind of grow up with them. There'll be a hodgepodge of them. Our definitions usually stem kind of out of three areas. It's usually some version of like, that's the team we're on. So I'm not a Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim. I'm a Christian kind of a thing or the tradition we grew up in. I I celebrate Christmas instead of Hanukkah kind of a thing, and my family tradition and things I'm familiar with. And then a lot of us come from, when we think about what's it mean to follow Christ, we think about behavior modification. So I don't do these things anymore. I do do these things, and that makes me a Christian. I I don't smoke, drink, chew, dig, or also do cheer for Michigan kind of a thing, but I do these things over here instead. And, uh, and that's kind of how I determine that I'm a Christ follower. And so we've been looking at Luke chapter 14. And Luke chapter 14 is one of the places in the scripture where Jesus, in his own words, kind of brings a lot of clarity to what it actually means, what he's actually calling people to. And we're looking at that and saying, well, is that what Jesus means? Does he mean team, tradition, or behavior? Or does he mean something else when he says, be my disciples or be my followers. And we're learning a lot and leaning into a lot. These passages in Luke 14, the end of it, Jesus's words, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, then verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. And we went back to this verse 26 and said, what does he mean here? Does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even their own life. Obviously, Jesus is not saying to go hate people. That would be uh, contradictive to all else that he teaches. What he's doing here is he's being comparative And he's saying, compared to the affection that I have for my family, if I'm not willing to take 
my life, my family, my relationships out of the first place of affection and put Christ there, I cannot be his disciple. Uh, authority. If I do not take myself, my mom, my dad, my sister, brothers, my culture is what we started to call it, out of that first place of authority and put Christ there, I cannot be his disciple, right? If I do not take them out of first place of governance, then I cannot be his disciple. And Jesus isn't saying that you lose your discipleship. He's not saying, you know, you were my disciple and then you screwed up and now you're not. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, my disciples enlist to follow me. When they say that they're going to be my followers, they are saying that I'm going to be first place in affection, first place in authority, first place in governance in their, their lives. And those are the decisions that they're making and the places that they're going to put themselves and the places they're going to put me. And if you're not making that decision, then you can't be my disciple that, because it's what what it means to be my disciple is I'm in that first place. If you won't pick up your cross, there's consequences to following me. There's ramifications to it. If you won't engage those or carry those, then you cannot be my disciple because that's what my disciples do. They, they know full well that they embrace those. And if you won't give up everything, if there's aspects of your life that you're holding back and you say, Jesus, you can have control over everything except the money and like my sexual identity and my plans. Other than that, then Jesus is saying, you can't be my disciple because my disciples wouldn't say or do that. And I gave you the illustration of my friend who joined the army. He enlisted. He knew full well what he was getting into. He enlisted. And now he's not at all surprised that he's functioning a certain way because that's what it means to enlist. And Jesus says you should count the cost. You should think it through before you enlist. And when you do enlist, these are the things that you're signing up for. So we talked about that in detail a couple weeks ago. Last weekend, we talked about the idea of spiritual elitism, uh, that it's really not these behavioral choices. That's not what Jesus is, is talking about need to listen to that whole conversation, download that if you missed it, it's a good one. And that's on the podcast and it's on the website and uh, it's all over the place. And you can, it's on the app I think too, and you can uh, watch that, kind of fill in these blanks. This weekend I want to advance the conversation. So we're going to go back to Luke chapter 14. If you got your Bibles, you can open them up there. Luke chapter 14. And we're going to... Um, there it is, Luke chapter 14, it's page 847 in the Bibles that are in your chairs. And we're going to pick Jesus up where we left him off last weekend. So last weekend, Jesus had been invited to this dinner by these guys called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So these are the religious elites at the dinner. They try to trick him and get him to heal somebody on the Sabbath, which was a violation of religious law. Jesus did it. They thought that they got him, and then he pointed out their hypocrisy and their elitism, and he said, you know, if you had a kid or an ox stuck in a well, you would violate the Sabbath too, right? So he kind of faced them with their hypocrisy, and then verse 6, after he did that, the Bible says, and they said they had nothing to say. So now we're at this awkward pause in the conversation, 
And verse 7 goes on in this same setting. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. So let's just pause here for a second, get some cultural context. Remember at these dinners, the way that they functioned was the guest of honor, which would have been Jesus, would have been the focal point of everybody. And then the places of honor would have been the seats closest to the guest of honor. And the seating chart was really, really important in settings like this. The closest thing for us would be something like a, a wedding uh, re reception. You'd have a head table. The family would be up close and then this and that. Uh, you know, we talked about the Golden Globes. Like when you have like a big award thing in Hollywood, like the Golden Globes, it's a dinner. You have like Tom Hanks and Brad Pitt up front, and then way back there is like Billy Ray Cyrus, right? He's like mm, back in the back, and he has an achy, breaky heart back there. See what I did right there? See it? And so that, that's where that is, or an old country road, whichever one you're going to go with. And so he, he's back there because he's not as honored. And so Jesus sees them coming into these dinners and throwing elbows to get in the best seats because they want to be honored and they want to be seen as the most important. So he tells them a parable. And a parable is simply a spiritual story that Jesus will create to reveal his heart and mind to us, okay? So he tells them this parable, verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person you, your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you arrive, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus just leans in and he says, listen, if you take the good seat, and somebody that's a bigger deal than you comes in, you're going to be asked to stand up, and it's going to be humiliating to be taken to the back of the room and sit with Billy Ray Cyrus. But if you, if you just sit by Billy Ray back there, and the host looks and says, wait a minute, you belong up here. Come up here, then you will be exalted. And the key verse in this parable is that verse 11 for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus looks at this room that he's in, and then us through Scripture, and says, I want to teach you guys the truth. All those who exalt themselves, people who make a dash for the place of honor, they got to be in that chair. People who exalt themselves, who build themselves up, something's going to happen to them Everybody who exalt them, exalts themselves sooner or later will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, right? So the person who's going to make the shot for the front chair, they're, they're going to be humbled. The person who says, I'm good back here with Billy Ray, I just, I just hang out, they're going to be exalted and this is the way the kingdom of God works. 
Jesus is saying. He's laying out this principle. He says, you want to know my heart? You want to know my mind? It's going to be along these lines, that I'm going to, I'm going to humble the proud, and I'm going to give grace to those who humble themselves. Now, as a disciple then, as a follower of Jesus, trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus, I'm going to look at something like this. I'm going to say, wow, Jesus, through his parable, laid out his heart and his mind to me. I, as a disciple, want to pick up the heart and mind of Jesus. I want to act like, talk like, think like, love like, and be motivated like Jesus. I want my life to be hidden in Jesus so that when you look at me, you see Christ. You can understand who he is as he transforms me. So if that is what Jesus says, and I want to be like him, what else do I need to know about Jesus and his thoughts about his humility? I would go to passage like Philippians chapter 2 here. This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about what Jesus is like and how he functions. He says this in Philippians chapter 2. He's talking before this about who Christ is and his place in heaven and how he stepped out of heaven and came to earth, how he had all the rights of heaven. He is the son of God. He's the creator of heavens and earth. He could have chosen that, but instead, or rather, Jesus made a, set, a different set of decisions. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He made himself nothing. He didn't accidentally become nothing. He chose to be nothing. It's not that Jesus was on the edge of heaven one day looking down on earth and, be, eh, and just tripped and, oh man, now I'm nothing, right? He, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He could have taken, quote-unquote, other natures, quote-unquote, right? Because he could have taken the nature of a leader. He, he could have taken the nature of, of a king. He could have taken the nature of an authoritarian. He could have taken the nature of, he could have taken a bunch of natures. So he chose to take a nature. He made himself nothing. He chose the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself. Christ was not humiliated. He was not humbled. He chose to humble himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so I'm putting this all together now as a Christ follower. I'm looking, I'm saying, wait a minute. I want to be like Christ. Jesus leans in in his parable and says, I can either exalt myself or I can humble myself. I, I have like those two options. What would Jesus do? What was his nature? If I was going to mimic or mirror or adopt his nature, what did he do? Well, he took the nature of a servant. He stepped out of heaven. He humbled himself. He decided to do those things, and he continues to do those things even today, right? Jesus didn't have to come down and rescue us. He chose to. He wasn't like stuck and like I'm forced to do that. He chose to do that, right? And we weren't even asking him to do that and he chose to do that. He didn't have to put up 
with the, the, the suffering of the cross. He chose to. The Bible says he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have, like, controlled all, deleted, shut down, just started history over. He chose to endure the cross. He doesn't have to lead us patiently. He chooses to. Every time we mess up, screw up, misrepresent him, he could just, I mean, go Old Testament, just open the ground, swallow us up. It's happened before. Like, he could do that. He chooses not to do that. Why? Because he chose the nature of a servant, and he chooses to humble himself, right? And if I was looking at what does it mean to be his follower, what example is he setting, what, what would he want for me, I would look right there at Luke 14, verse 11, and say, well, that's got a lot to do with it. That those who exalt themselves will be humble, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. That as a follower, I'm choosing humility. I'm choosing servanthood. I'm making a set of decisions that reflect the decisions that Jesus would make. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 kind of pressed into this. We talked about this some last week. When we looked at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, this is what we read. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. So this is specifically those of us who are Christ followers. Because I am reborn in Christ, now this is the way that I would function. Since you've been raised in Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, right? So salvation is us embracing the death of Jesus. Discipleship is us embracing the death of ourself. I'm laying aside my rights. I die to myself, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in those ways and the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, slander, malice, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the Creator. And we looked at that some last week, and we said, wait a minute, there's something that has happened here in Christ I have died to myself. There is my former life, and it's gone. It has died. The old is gone. The new has come, the Bible says. So there's my former life, and then there's my life in Christ. And my former life had practices. There's ways that I, I lived. There were values. There were other things in the first place of affection, authority, and governance that ruled me and steered me in my former life. And then Paul says this, but since you, you, you've changed, since you've given your life to Christ, since you enlisted, since you have done that, you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on a new self which be, is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of God. So there's this taking off, putting on, taking off, putting on, because I'm walking away from my former life Paul goes on down, same passage in verse 12. 
And he says this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So he ties all this together and he says, you remember that former life with its practices where your old nature was your main point of affection and your main point of authority and your main point of governance, but you died to it? Now what we have to do is change because this former life looked a certain way. There were certain things we would clothe ourselves in our former, uh, our former life. We're going to take that clothing off and we're going to put on the clothing of our new self. We're going to clothe ourselves in compassion. We're going to clothe ourselves in mercy. We're going to clothe ourselves in patience. And we're going to clothe ourselves in, in humility, right? In the former life with its practices, where my life was the most important thing. Look out for me, live my truth, watch out for number one, do what you have to do, you do you. Well, that was the number one thing. If I'm living that way, I cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. How come? Because he's not in that position. So I die to that, I decide that I'm not going to be in that position anymore. I allow Christ to have it. And now I'm making the decisions to put that stuff away. Why? Because in my former life, my instinct is to shoot for that front seat. I've got to be at the head of that table, and I've got to satisfy the instincts of, of, the, of the, my former life. It's the way that all of humanity thinks. I've got to be there. And if I'm not there, I may not be able to be the number one person in my life that I want to be. And, and then Paul just goes to the practice. I got to be there with my sexual immorality. I got to be there with my, my sexual identity. Because there's a former way of thinking that if I could, if I could satisfy the flesh at every will and instinct of the flesh, that will make me happy and it will satisfy my soul. So my identity is not as a child of God or a unique and wonderfully made creation of God. My identity is my sexuality, which is a small piece of me. But I, I've got to satisfy, I've got to go right there and I have to be in that front, so nobody else can speak into that. I gotta sit in the front row of my sexuality, and it has to be satisfied, and I'm gonna exalt myself there. I'm gonna make sure that everybody knows about my conquest. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep my, my list. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna clothe myself in such a way that you understand those things and you know that about me. And then just swap the form, just swap the sin out. It's greed. I gotta be there. Because I gotta be at the top of the heap. I have to have the nicest, whatever I want, whatever I determine is success, because I'm the number one governor in my life. Whatever I determine that success is, that chair, I have to sit in that chair. I have to have it. And if I have to throw an elbow, if I have to get ahead, if I gotta cut a corner, so be it. But Everybody told me, see, 
my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, myself, everybody told me that if you have enough money, you'll be happy. Why did you go to college? To get an education. Why do you need an education? To get a good job. Why do you need a good, good job? To live a good life. Why do you need to live a good life? To be happy. Everybody tells you that. It's what you have to do. See? Why do we go hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt? Be, to, to live a good life. You feel like your life is good when you can't pay your bills every month? But you have everything. I've got to be in that seat, see? I, I've got to own that. We can feel that way about our anger and our bitterness. It feels good to be angry, doesn't it? It feels good to be angry. In fact, pop, pop psychology will tell us that if we can get our anger out, if we can act on our anger, it will make us emotionally healthy. So we have rage rooms and things like that. There's a rage room at my house, it's my family room. I rage, right? I rage every time Clemson beats Ohio State, I rage, right? And we're told that if you just act on that stuff and you do it in your soul, it doesn't matter who you're hurting, it doesn't matter who you're accusing, it doesn't matter the validity of the accusation, you just have to get it out, because if, if you keep it in, it's gonna hurt you. Well, the problem is this. When I act on my anger, all it does is make me more angry. All it does is causes me to lose self-control, which, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit. I'm working against my own self-interest, but mom, dad, the culture, sister, brother, everybody said, and I, you know, I gotta do what's best for me. And I have to be in that front seat, the focal point of my own life, for my own cause. And we exalt ourselves. And I'm wrapping myself up, because my instinct in my old life is to go for that seat. I'm clothing myself in those evil practices. Now, let me tell you something about the front seat, the front row. Here's what happens. When you get to the front row, the goal of your life becomes to stay in the front row. And here's the reality. Nobody can stay in the front row. There's always somebody who's better than you, richer than you, more athletic than you, more good looking than you in this room. Obviously, I dominate that department. But like, there's, there's always somebody who is, belongs in the seat that you're in and is competing to get there. You cannot stay in the front row. In fact, the phases of life work that way. If you can get in the front row in one phase of life, you wind up in the back row of the next phase of life. If you win high school, the things you have to do to win high school, so you, you won, you won high school, you are the coolest kid in high school, you made it. The problem with that is you're going to graduate. And the minute you graduate, all of that stuff that you won goes away. And if you function in college the way you function in high school, you look ridiculous. You can't stay in the front row. What you can do in the front row, though, is you can teach people in the rows behind you how to live and interact with you. Because everybody who exalts themselves is going to be 
humbled. When I sit in the front row, I'm going to lose my spot. I'll give you a great example of this, parenting. I'm in the front row as a parent. It's great. I own everything. I own the house. I own the TV. I own the cars. I own the children. I have a receipt from the hospital that says I purchased them (laughs) to get them out. I own everything as a dad, right? Now, I can sit in that front row, arrogant, controlling, domineering, but here's the problem. I'm going to lose my seat. Sooner or later, my children are going to have to lead me. I'm going to need them. I'm going to lose my place of dominance sooner or later because you can't live forever in the front row. And if I taught them to be greedy, to be selfish, to be arrogant, to be dominating, to be wrapped up in their own self-interest, then when I swap seats with them, they're going to function the way that I taught them to function, and I'm going to be the one who's left in need. Because you always lose your seat in the front row. If you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. There's always going to be a guy more talented than you at work because they're younger and they understand all the new stuff instinctually that you're going to seminars to try to learn. They're always going to displace you. There's always a better athlete coming. That really goes away, right? It's always going to happen. There's always somebody prettier. You can be as pretty as you want, but you can't stop time, baby. It's going to happen. And how I interact with the people behind me teaches them to interact with me when they're ahead of me. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. So what's a disciple do? What's a disciple do? As God's chosen people, a disciple, a volunteer, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. Jesus humbled himself. He took took the nature of a servant. He took it. If I exalt myself, I will be humbled. You're going to get humbled. It's, It's unavoidable. Or I could humble myself. I could sit back with Billy Ray Cyrus. And the host, who is God in the parable, the host who decides what seat he wants us in, it's his decision, whether he wants us in the back of the room or he wants us in the front room. That's God's decision, and he'll make those decisions based on his will and his plan. It's not my decision. But the host will exalt me if I humble myself. If I exalt myself, I will just be humbled. And a disciple is one who continually makes these decisions. They are not ones who perfect them because our instinct is always to go for the front seat. Look out for number one. I'm going to clothe myself with the things that I want. But a disciple is one who pauses. When when I'm running toward the front row... And I don't want to be compassionate. I want, I want you to feel the pain. And besides that, you stab me in the back. And 
When I'm tempted to put on this article of clothing, I take it off, I walk over, so to say, to my new self, and I clothe myself with compassion. I don't want to be patient. I, I mean, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do that. Why can't you just get your act together? How hard is it? I don't want to be patient. But a disciple is one who chooses to walk over and clothe themselves with patience. I don't want to be humble. I have rights. I don't want to sit down on my rights. I belong where I belong. I don't want to do that. But a disciple is one who would take off the covering of pride and walk over and clothe themselves with humility. And a disciple is one who simply makes those decisions. We never perfect those decisions. We pursue those decisions. We take every thought captive. See? We keep Jesus in that first place or replace him when we throw an elbow and knock him out of the way. And you cannot be my disciple if you won't clothe yourself in who I am because that's what my disciples do. You cannot be my disciple if you won't pick up your cross because there are ramifications to this. If I take myself out of the first place of authority and governance of my sexuality, then God has to define my sexuality and that is going to deeply affect my practices. If I take myself out of the position of greed, then God defines my finances and that deeply affects my practices. There's ramifications to it. You cannot refuse to pick up your cross and be my disciple because my disciple would make the decision to pick up his cross. If you don't give everything, God, I'll, I'll wear this article and this one, but I want that one and, and I'll wear that one, but like in a shade of green. You cannot be my disciple and negotiate with me about your spiritual wardrobe that's not what my disciples do. My friend who's in the army right now is not going back and forth in a long discussion with his drill sergeant about what he's going to wear today. <laughs> See? He's, he's going to clothe himself in the uniform that he enlisted to wear. And Jesus did that. It's not this oppressive God and, oh, we got to do so many things. Jesus would look and say, oh, that's what I did. I took, I chose. I humbled myself. I decided. I did it for you. And those who follow me, right, those who follow me, they would make those same types of decisions. I was out talking with a, a group a few years ago, and uh, I actually was at this conference speaking and, and uh, finished up speaking, and this, um, this kid came up to me afterwards, and he was all amped up. I was talking to all these people about the sermon and what God had done. It was kind of a fun time, actually. And, and this one kid came up, and he's like, I just feel like God's worth so deeply in my heart. I was like, that's, that's terrific. And I just feel like I got to go in the full-time ministry. I'm like, oh, that's, that's amazing, man. That's great. God's calling you. And he, he, goes, he goes, I just have to do what you do. And I, I was like, 
what is it that you think that I do, per se? He's like, I got to preach. I got to preach. I got to be in front of everybody. I got to preach. I got to let them know. And I got to tell them what's wrong. And I got to... And I said, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. I said, okay. And so, and so he said, he goes, how do I do that? How do I do that? And what he meant was like, what degree do you get? And this and that thing. And he's like, how do I, just tell me what to do to do what you do. And I said, well, I said, let's back this up a minute. I said, if you want to stand in front of people, why don't you move to the ghetto and work there for a couple years? Because when people who live in the ghetto, who don't have to live in the ghetto, stay in the ghetto and love people, suddenly the credibility of the gospel shifts. You go in the ghetto and preach a sermon, tell everybody in the ghetto why they're living badly, they're all going to ignore you and think you're an idiot, and they're kind of right. But if you don't have to live in the ghetto, you choose to live in the ghetto, and you love the people in the ghetto, because once you love somebody someplace, you're not afraid of that place anymore, it might shock you to find out their pain, their frustrations, some of the injustices that they perceive that might be real. It may alter who you are. He didn't like that idea a lot. So... He, he, he kind of went on. I said, I said what, if you, um, what if you go and live in a country for a couple years where they don't like Americans? Because it would, it would help you sort out which part of your following Christ is Americanism and which part of it is Christianity. But when you, when you live with a bunch of people who completely disagree with you, but you decide to love them, embrace them anyways, the gospel becomes really, really clear to them. Why don't you work with teenagers? Not in like a big way, just in their lives. Go to their schools. Have lunch in their cafeterias. Look at the pressure they actually live under. Before you just tell them what to do and how ridiculous it is that they don't get it, go, try to walk a mile in their shoes and understand the pressures. Go hang out with college students. Go, go to their philosophy class with them and you try to answer the arguments that's being in front of them. There's a saying we have here at Grace that I love because I wrote it. And I think it's phenomenal. <laughs> so you should probably get a tattoo of it. But, but here, here's the saying. We say this. If servanthood is beneath you, leadership is above you. If servanthood is beneath you, leadership is above you. And what I was doing, I wasn't trying to pick on this kid. I was just saying, don't stand up on a stage and yell at people that you're not willing to die for. And when you learn to love people and you're willing to die for them, guess what? You won't stand on a stage and yell at them. I'm not doing whatever you think I'm doing. Okay. Guys, our world is desperate for the gospel. And they're very clear about where the church of Jesus Christ stands on issues. 
There's no, there's no ambiguity about that. What's confusing is that people they don't know and they don't feel loved by are yelling at them about irrelevant things, unbiblical things, things that are political issues, not spiritual issues, things that, that are, are cultural issues, not spiritual issues. How much time you spend on your phone is not in the Bible. They don't feel loved. So a stranger speaking into my life to questions I'm not asking them makes no sense. Well, how do we get the truth out? How do I get the next generation? How do I get my grandkids and my children and the next generation, my friends on the football team, and how do I let them know who Jesus is? Well, Jesus would look and say, I got a plan. I got a plan. What if you, my disciples, just my, my disciples, what if you mimic me and humble yourself? Take the back seat. Serve people long before you would ever remotely propose to lead them. That's what I did. And it, it worked out pretty well. Right? And a humble servant is an anomaly in our culture. A boss that wants you to succeed is a weird boss. A teammate who is always passing you the ball is a weird teammate. A neighbor who doesn't gripe about your lawn but helps you with it is a weird neighbor. A teenager who serves their family and doesn't demand from them is a weird teenager. A college student who is teachable instead of a know-it-all is a weird college student. A teacher who is helping you learn instead of keeping you in your place is a weird teacher. A church that would embrace you at your point of need instead of telling you what you should do different is a weird church. And there's something incredibly powerful about sitting in the back seat. And the host, the host will decide. The host will decide if you should stay in the back seat, be in the middle seat, be in the front seat. That's his decision. And a Christ follower who trusts the host to do that will always be recognized as a disciple.
All right. I wanted to give you some handles to kind of put on. I just I wrote down questions like this. Like what, what seed are we making a run for is a big one. And, and this is always our temptation. It's mine too. I'm a competitive person in certain areas of my life. Right? I want to win. I want to win arguments. I, I, wanna, I want to, to win control. I, wanna, I want our church to be the biggest and the best church in the world. I want to take the Baptists out, the Presbyterians out, hit the Methodists in the faith. Like, like I, I have all those, all that in me, right? And so... If I'm being honest, if you said, well, Jeff, what chair are you, are you diving for? I'm like, well, there's a few. There's a few. So what chair are you diving for? And how would you bring that? How would you humble yourself? Right? And then the second question I thought of was this. How would humility change a relationship that you're in? If you humbled yourself, would it thaw the ice? Would it bring an alleviation? In a relationship that you're in, how would that humility? Last thing, why are you afraid to let God exalt you? Because when I try to exalt myself, it's because I'm afraid God won't do it the way I want him to do it. So what is that fear? How's that playing out? How do I bring that back to Christ and, and let him do what he's decided to do in my life, okay? All right. Band will come. Give us a couple minutes here to thank and pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us with this. It's hard. It's so against our, our grain as human beings, so it has to be a supernatural work of you. So would you do that work in us through your Holy Spirit, would you press in? Would you show us these points in our life? Would you convict us? Would you change us? Would you lead us to be more and more who you've called us to be? And God, help us to be humble in our interaction with you. Lord, the temptation, the instinct is always to take your spot in our life but to step back and let you be who you are. Guide us through it. Work in us in these ways, even now, Jesus, in your name.